Over 30 years of advice for your house, home, castle, or cabin. Y'all have things you want to get done. It's Rosie on the House. On a beautiful fall Saturday morning in the great state of Arizona, broadcasting from the parking lot across the street from Wickenburg Town Hall, celebrating Henry Wickenburg's 200th birthday. Uh, we are next to their presentation stage where they just finished uh, posting colors, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, singing in Star Spangled Banner. I'm glad we got through that before we went live because it was a bit loud. Right now, uh, Senate Majority Whip Sonny Borelli is on stage uh, giving the governor's address to uh, commemorate this event. And we've been talking all morning long about Henry Wickenburg. We have a special guest coming in, Dr. Patricia Olson, the doctor is in the house, who is a historic preservation and sustainable architect, is going to talk about some of Henry Wickenburg's homes in Wickenburg. But before we do, we've had people on hold. We've been interviewing all these fantastic special guests, and people have been calling in one 767 to ask their home improvement questions. Let me just jump through a quick, a couple that have come in that uh, uh, we didn't get to. So one of the first ones was uh, pool water elevation, that they're losing several inches a day, but there's a wet spot beside the pool. Well, that's pretty obvious. You obviously have a leak. Uh, usually when you have a swimming pool leak, it's not that obvious. You've got a large wet spot adjoining the swimming pool area. You're losing two inches a day. I would tell you, uh, just for kicks, let it drain till it quits draining. It may be the bond beam where the ceramic tile and the plaster meet. That's a very, very common area of leaking. But the more typical problem is when we don't see the obvious wet spot. How can we tell if a pool has a leak or not? Here's a trick. Take a five-gallon bucket. Put it on the second step of the swimming pool. Fill the water in the bucket up to exactly the same level as the pool water on the outside of the bucket. And watch to see which level uh, decreases at a lower or softer, quicker or slower amount. That will tell you if the water in the bucket is disappearing at the same rate water in the swimming pool is disappearing. You're just losing natural evaporation. But if the pool water level is sinking faster than what the bucket is uh, losing, you've actually got a swimming pool leak. The other question we had is on termites. I did have a, a termite company come by. They did a termite treatment of a house. Um, they charged me $1,100, and it... As the warranties expired, it was two years ago, they want to charge $250 to get another one-year extension. What would be your recommendation? I'm not a big fan of extended warranties on anything. I would tell you that if they use Termidor, Termidor actually kills the termite colony. It doesn't just move the colony. And if you don't have conditions conducive to recreate the environment, I wouldn't do it, but I generally don't do any extended warranties. So make sure you don't have an air conditioning condensate draining right beside 
the foundation of your home that keeps a big, moist, wet spot right there all summer. I would recommend in a perfectly designed home, all landscape irrigation falls three feet away from a home's foundation so that everything immediately around the home stays absolutely dry. I would also tell you I wouldn't stack firewood against the home. I'd make sure that my landscape debris and clutter is raked up regularly. And if you don't have any of those conditions, I personally would not do the extended warranty. So there's the two questions that were on hold for a long time. I want to bring in now our special guests who have joined us right here in Wickenburg, Dr. Patricia Olson, architect, historic preservation, and sustainability expert. Thank you so much for coming up. What what has you here in Wickenburg today? Henry Wickenburg's 200th birthday. We're here to celebrate. Yes, (laughs) and you've got a particular connection to kind of the whole festivity up here. I do. Um, Back in 2005, the Wickenburg Historical Preservation Society hired Otwell Associates Architects out of Prescott, where I was working as an architect at the time, to prepare a National Register nomination for Henry Wickenburg's final home on the end of Washington Street. And through that process, uh, both myself and Bill Otwell, the principal of the firm, um, came to know that house very well. And uh, the property was listed in 2006 on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, Following that, uh, Otwell Associates was also involved in the rehabilitation and preservation of the house. So uh, taking it from that first step of listing into a point where it's now a museum for the Wickenburg community and uh, conveying the history of Henry Wickenburg in this community. And it's open today. It is open today as part of the festivities, yes. So, So go ahead and tell us the story of the house. Well, the house was constructed in 1903 by Mr. Wickenburg. Uh, He lived there with the Hollands, um, who essentially cared for him. Uh, He was in his 80s at the time. He only lived there for two years. Um, He passed away on March 14th of 1905, uh, there uh, on the property. So the the house was constructed of adobe. Now, did he make this house? Did he build this house? He built this house. Um, It's a stone cobble foundation with uh, adobe structure. It's in what's called a, a Victorian-style adobe, which essentially means um, it's not the traditional adobe you would see, the indigenous adobe um, that would be uh, built by uh, Native people. But it was built at a time when the railroad had arrived in 1895 in Wickenburg. And so that allowed more modern materials, more industrial materials to be used in construction. And so those were used. So things, um, rather than log posts and branches for roof structure, it was dimensional lumber. So there were, there were features of the house that were traditional in that it was adobe construction, but there were also some of those newer industrial products, wood, wood doors, uh, casings, window casings, um, interior finishes, uh, moldings. So he did take advantage of some of that newer technology and newer products that well, were tell available. Tell me a little bit more about the adobe brick itself then. So it wasn't like it was, the, the, the... Just in- as all adobe's made, it's made from the materials on the site. So oh, okay. it's I thought mu- that was their mud adobe. Too, but no, this no, was okay. No. All right. So the the adobes were constructed on site okay. from the material there on that property, which was very common as well because at that time, Wickenburg or the Wickenburg area was very rural, and so it was easier to use the materials you had at hand. Absolutely. I would only question Henry's site location. 
with all the ground he had out here to pick from. I, I, that house is a little too close to the railroad tracks for me. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I haven't read anything it, as to why he it, chose the site he chose. <laughs> it is great for getting your materials and supplies, but baby, when that train comes through at 12 o'clock at night, you're you know it, you're shaking. You know it's there. <laughs> yes. For sure. It was steam it, trains back then, too. And they were steam trains back then. You're exactly right. It's a little messy besides. Mm-hmm. So... How many of his homes did y'all track through the area? Well, there were probably quite a few. His first home was a tent. So when he first arrived and was uh, searching for gold, he lived in a tent at a mining camp of with other people. So technically that was his first home. Um, probably a home he lived in on his way here as well. Uh, then he built a rock house at the vulture mine. So after he discovered the vulture mine and was working that mine, he built a rock house. Now remnants of that house are still there. So you can go out to, to the vulture mine and still see, uh, it's dilapidated, it's, you know, it's in ruins, but you can still see portions of that rock house. Um, when he sold, so jumping ahead a little bit, um, when he sold his interest in the mine claim, <clears throat> he moved um, just, nearby but into the Hacienda River Valley and he built another house which is the one that's known as the Tunnel House. So the Tunnel House was backed up against a cave and it was also a rock house. Um, That one's probably the most well known other than his final house here. The reason it's called the Tunnel House is he built a tunnel to provide himself with an escape in case of any um, Indian attacks. Uh, I don't believe that happened, but um, he had that ability to to escape. Uh, that house, unfortunately, was lost in the 1890 uh, Walnut Creek Dam um, flood, and all of the structures there. So to answer your question, there were other structures on the property. There was another home, which was referred to as the 1864 home, um, which was also in the Hacienda Creek area. Um, it is, there's said to be other cabins he had and storehouses. So it's hard to tell exactly how many homes he had. We also know that he lived in a rental property on Tegner, which was also an adobe, which is still existing, for 455 Tegner. And then finally, uh, 225 Washington Street on the end of the road on Washington. And then 225 is where uh, he met the end of his life. Yes. The last couple of years of his life. Uh, he built it himself, lived there with another caretaking family right. that was care- mm-hmm. caring for this him. And it's actually open this weekend for touring. It is. It, it's yes. a public property it right is. now. It's not open all of the time, but the Wickenburg Historical Preservation Society makes it available. And this weekend is one of those times when there will be staff there. There'll be people to uh, answer questions and sh- uh, provide guidance on, on what their people are seeing. And it is, is it an adobe plaster or adobe? Adobe block. So the adobe blocks. It's exposed built, block. Uh, and then plastered. Okay. Yes. Okay. yes. Mm-hmm. And then the pictures I've seen, I have never been to it, but we will be there shortly after the broadcast ends. Is it is it like borderline Victorian? Well, it has those Victorian features, gable and features, and right? Stuff. It's so okay. it, um, it's also known as what what's known as a cottage style. So okay. it's, it was an L-shaped three-room 
house with a porch in the corner of the L. So it's basically 35 by 32 feet uh, square with three rooms. That All of that is adobe and then the porch in the interstitial space there in the L when Mr. Wickerberg built it. When the house was then sold to the Boetto family, it was uh, remodeled and there was a kitchen added to the rear and a bathroom added to the west side. Remodeled. Now that's the subject I want to talk about. We're here with Dr. Patricia Olson, historic preservation and sustainability specialist and architect right here in the state of Arizona. We'll be right back, y'all. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Rosie on the House. Enjoying a blue sky morning way out west in Wickenburg. Enjoying the festivities at the Henry Wickenburg's 200th birthday celebration. We have Dr. Patricia Olson on with us. Thank you so much for joining us. We're having a good time talking about his homes. We've been talking ranch style versus ranch homes with Don Ryden. And then Dr. Pat is up here um, to, to speak today, actually, on the community stage. And we are talking about the different homes that um, Henry lived in. And I and I, I remember you said you also are, you do his, historical architecture and as well as your specialty is sustainability. So they, they were obviously just organically sustainable, right? Exactly. Right. Yes, using the you, materials that were readily available. Yeah, you said being no sustainable is just being it's common, common sense. sense. Yeah, yes, so kind of use ex- what you have. Yeah, explain some how that applies to well, his home. Well, the not having access... Um, was was due to not having a way to transport any other materials to the site. So you look to the site to provide what you needed. And in a place where there's wood, you'd build with wood. And here there's earth. You build, create adobe blocks. You construct a go, adobe blocks. That was the building material readily at hand. And again, the difference between indigenously, they would have used um, logs and branches then for the roof structure because that w- would have been available. But by the time Henry Wickenburg's final house was constructed, the railroad was able to bring in dimensional lumber, and so that was used instead. So now we have products being brought in that weren't necessarily prepared on site. When y'all were going to get the home registered, had there been a period of vacancy, or had that home been occupied from its construction in 1902? No, uh, 19, 1903. Sorry. And yes, uh, it, it was occupied first uh, by Mr. Wickerberg in the Hollands, and then they sold the property to the Boetto family and in 1917, 19, 1917, I believe. And that the Boetto family lived there until the late 50s. Uh, Mr. Boetto died in the late 50s, and then uh, their son Tony's wife became the owner when Tony passed away and it was vacant for a long time because her name was Laurel. Laurel didn't live there um, after that time. So there was a repair and restoration. Exactly. Yes. There was a lot of repair needed to the house, but it wasn't sold to the city of Wickenburg until 2000. So we have a a long period there where it was unoccupied. Now, when y'all are retained to come in and get it historic certified, do you have to take down the additions that have been tacked onto it? That's a really good question. Uh, in this case, no, because the additions themselves were over 50 years old. Okay. So they had acquired historic significance. And the Boetto family is uh, significant in the community and had lived there so long that, in fact, the house 
on the National Register is uh, titled the Wickenburg Boeto House because both of those are historically significant in the history of the house. Well, that worked out well for y'all. It did. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine in 1903, um, uh, there, was, there was no wiring. No. There was, there was no indoor plumbing. There was, it was an outhouse. It was a, it was a walk-to outhouse, mm-hmm. you know, two, 365 days a year. So all those things have been added to the home. Uh, to make it more modern yeah. over time, yes. Okay. And that is open today, open on a limited basis in general? Yes. Um, the Wickenburg Historical Preservation Society has certain events throughout the year, but they also will will make the home available if they're able to do so by contacting them. So if, if someone is in town and this is their only opportunity to see it, I would suggest getting in touch with the um, Historical Preservation Society to find out if they might be able to let them tour it. And you talk sustainability. He built out of uh, uh, Adobe, so you've got a good thermal mass Absolutely. for all of your exterior Perfect walls. Perfect desert material. Which make for a very comfortable living through the winter in particular, you can be very comfortable with just a simple pot belly stove or a fireplace, and you're done. But it still gets hot here in the summer. Sustainability, you've got to orientate your house, common sense, as to the prevailing breezes and how you're going to access them, how you're going to direct them and guide them. Uh, does, did, did any of that get incorporated well, into the site selection i would i think so because if you look at the site there are a number of trees around the site especially on the west side so my mind he was thinking about that how do i shade this house so keeping the sun off the house is also going to help keep it cooler also before there was so much development in the desert the desert's cooled off at night yes so you could open your house and let that cool air in and then close it up during the day and you'd have cooled down all that same mass yeah. in the house to keep you cooler oh, in the summer. Fantastic. Dr. Patricia Olson. Now, where do you currently practice? Um, right now, I am consulting. So I'm uh, doing work as uh, historic preservation and sustainable design consulting. I continue to do work with Bill Otwell okay. in Prescott. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I'm glad and to do so. joining thank us here on air and sharing your wisdom with all of our listeners. Gladly. Thanks a million. We've got Green Valley uh, Fire Marshal coming up next, right? Talking fire about, mm-hmm. We're talking about we're holiday talking. kitchen fires. That's right. Keep you safe. All right. Good morning. Welcome back to Rosie on the House. We're going to change gears a little bit. You can always kind of catch a clue by the music Gary chooses, but we're going to change to a safety topic this morning. We have a hashtag every month, every week actually, in our calendars. And if you haven't signed up for our calendar yet, you can email us at info at rosieonthehouse.com. We'll send you a free calendar every year. And um, this week's hashtag is on fire safety. We thought it was kind of timely with the holidays coming up, and it is a big issue. This is a pretty busy time of year for um Fire, house fires. Not, not that we've had any Cajun cousins burn down their backyard cooking sheds trying to deep fry a turkey or anything. No, none. So we invited um, retired battalion chief Tom Lewis. I was He was chief in Green Valley for 22 years and just recently retired. He's, he was also the public information officer, so he's, he loves educating people about fire and being safe. You there, Tom? 
I am. Can you guys hear me okay? We can. Perfect. You sound good and clear. So is right it beautiful on. in Green Valley this morning? So I live in Tucson, and oh, it is okay. beautiful here. Yes, yeah. I've, I've actually lived in Tucson for, uh, well, since I was six years old. And so I made the commute oh. down to Green Valley for 22 years. Oh. Wow, wow. Well, um, you helped us create our, our blog, our hashtag article for the week and just shared a lot of good information. I think a good place to always start is preventing it, right? Yeah, I mean, in pr- 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 a lot of this is common sense, but if, if common sense were so common, we wouldn't probably be having this discussion today. So it's always nice to have some friendly reminders. Uh, you know, we just uh, we don't change our times uh, with the daylight savings, but that's always a time of year to kind of check your smoke detector uh, batteries and change them um, annually around this time of year. So that's a good segue into just generally preventing cooking fires. And uh, one of the key things is just... Think about what you're doing um, while you're in the kitchen and uh, look around, uh, see who's, who your guests are. If you're having any young children visit, turn those handles in and uh, just have some key supervision. You know, it's kind of, especially when family's coming, think of it like if they're all, everybody's out by a swimming pool. You know, it's always nice to have one adult that's just kind of in charge of keeping things, you know, in line and keeping an eye on things. And usually that's the person in the kitchen cooking, kind of the... The chef in the kitchen, usually it's, you know, it's mom or dad that's in charge of get the turkey and things on the stove. And just by doing that, um, I think, is a good step. It's a, what we call kind of in the business a situational awareness is just being aware of what's going around on around you. And even though it's a relatively small environment, the kitchen for sure, um, being able to be alert and uh, stay vigilant because unattended cooking fires uh, are one of the, the number one cause of... Uh, injuries in the home wow and it, you know some some types of of cooking i'm sorry some types types of cooking are, are more dangerous than others of course you can you can leave something you're baking but if you're going to grill or fry or boil or broil or even boil something you just have to relegate yourself to the kitchen you have to stay right? you do and uh you know, there's a lot of distractions in the holiday season, but just stay focused on what you're doing. And, uh, you know, you, 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 we joke about it, um, but, uh, you know, cooking under the influence. So uh, limit your alcohol consumption to uh, be wise about how much you're drinking. And, you know, it's, it's very much common uh, to be, you know, have some wine or some beer while you're cooking and things. But keep it, keep it to where it doesn't decrease your ability to be alert and catch things if something goes awry. Yeah, we need a new sign like, don't drink and cook or something. <laughs> don't drink and Desi- drive. Designated cook. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, no, I think, um, you know, it's unrealistic to say, oh, don't have anything in the kitchen. You know, don't drink while you're cooking and things like that. But, again, it's keeping that awareness um, strong enough that you can, uh, you know, something something untoward happens or a fire starts that you can handle it quickly um, without any kind of impairment. And that's just, again, a smart approach to, uh, to, to cooking in the kitchen. And, and again, Thanksgiving Day is the number one day for cooking fires, um, cooking and kitchen fires, followed by Christmas. And then number three, not too far behind, is Christmas Eve. So we're coming up on, you know, peak season for uh, kitchen fires. And they're highly preventable, and thankfully, uh, when you're doing this, most people are uh, awake, not not sleeping, so you're not waiting for the fire to go and then 
sound off the smoke detectors uh, and get you out of the house safely. But it's important to know that if a fire occurs, don't be a hero, all right? If, you, if it's something really small and you can put the lid on whatever is burning, you know, certainly do so, but don't forget to turn off the burner and uh, let it cool down. Don't open, don't take the lid off until everything is cooled down because it can reignite. Um, if you have baking powder, that certainly is acceptable. Then you have those little smaller kitchen extinguishers that many people keep under the sink. There's one that comes in just a, a simple can that's actually, from my understanding, is quite effective. I think they're called Tundra. And I have I happen to have one of those underneath my sink. And it's just one that you don't have to worry about the pressure leaking or having to recharge your extinguishers or replace them. Um, and it's just, you know, kind of a little bit of peace of mind. But Do they expire ever, Tom? You know, I know uh, extinguishers need to be, many extinguishers, standard, the, the, the classic dry chemical red extinguishers do have um, some expiration dates if they're not rechargeable. Mm-hmm. But I think if there is an expiration date on those, those tundras that you, you'll see at Home Depot and some of the other um, uh, hardware stores, I, I believe there may be an expiration date, but it's many years out there. Well, here's the point, really, that we'd like people to take away today is you to quote you you said make sure someone is in good enough state of mind to monitor the situation and be prepared if a fire breaks out to break out quickly but break but putting it out this is what i want to talk about that takes preparation to be able to put it out quickly you've got to have the right tools and the right mindset so you've got the traditional uh kid uh red spray cans but there's certain varieties of those you don't want to use in a kitchen either, right? So the key to look for when uh, for an extinguisher that's going to be effective in almost any environment that you're going to encounter in, in, the, in the home is what we call an, at least an AB extinguisher, um, preferably an ABC extinguisher. So to break it down, if an extinguisher is rated for A, it can handle normal solid combustibles. If it's rated B, it can handle flammable liquids or greases that will liquefy upon getting hot, okay, lower melting points. And then a class C extinguisher rating means that it, it is safe. It is a non-conducting agent, which means it's safe to use on energized electrical equipment, say like a microwave or a stove that might be plugged in. So your smart bet is to find something that is rated ABC. And keep in mind, too, that used one, many fire departments offer, I know ours did down in Green Valley, uh, fire extinguisher classes. Because if, in, if, you don't, if you get one that's kind of bigger, you'd be surprised how heavy they are. They're heavy they can be. And then when you go to grab it, if you've never practiced with it, um, you know, it's a little, you can be a little uncoordinated with it. So, and the nice thing is you don't have to bring your own extinguishers because we provide them, or at least I should say departments provide them. So you can practice, and it's actually kind of fun. And, and a lot of departments, they may have some digital ones, but the fun ones are where you've got an extinguisher trailer where it's filled with water and then connected to propane, and we actually reignite it with a flare so you can actually pretend putting out a small actual fire and, and get a real feel for how an extinguisher will perform. So practicing, knowing the type that you're going to get, and the good thing is almost all of them are going to be rated A, B, and C for what you're going to have for a typical home extinguisher in to go back to what we were talking about earlier, those tundras that I talked about, I grabbed mine out of the, from underneath the sink, and indeed, it does have an expiration date. Um, performance, the best performance by 
2023, and I bought oh, this gee. about two years ago. Okay. So it's many years. And so those, keep an eye on that, and you'll want to replace them once it gets past its day because, again, like most of us, you have rarely have uh, the need to use it, and then when you do, you want to be ready for it. And I, I think fire extinguishers could come, should come priced two for one. And one should be a demo practice model because the first time you're trying to put a fire out and you're trying to figure out what tab to pull, what key to ring, what trigger mode. to pull, you're in panic mode. And then once it, the, the product starts leaving the can, you're invariably very surprised at how it's pushing, you. <laughs> pushing everywhere and splattering everywhere. But so your concept of practicing once or twice, I think, is invaluable. Yeah, and take advantage. See if your local fire department offers something that will would allow you to practice that wouldn't cost you anything. Um, I know a lot of times, like at, at nursing homes and assisted livings, they kind of have mandatory training. But uh, a lot of things during fire prevention week back in October, a lot of organizations offer this kind of training. And if nothing else, just go through the motions with the one that mm. you do have so you can feel for the weight. Um, you know, the, the, the mnemonic they, that we use is pass, uh, pull, aim, squeeze, and sweep. And, you know, just, just simulate the motion, and that'll, that'll be a little, create a little bit of muscle memory so that if in the event that you ever have to do it, um, you know, it won't be the first time, you know, because you're always going to be better with it if you've got a chance to practice. And, again, we can get into the minutiae of practicing and, you know, the size of extinguisher and how much it's going to put out and things like that. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to don't be a hero. If, it, if it's getting, if it's not looking right, just get yourself and everybody out, call 911, and let the professionals come in and take care of business. Tom, how much do you think oil contributes to to the fires? I mean, you you gave a tip to us about um, the vegetable oil itself is not flammable and just what to watch for. Well, well, well it is flammable. Um, what happens is it's the, the it has um, a relatively high um, flash point, which means um, it gets it has to get pretty hot, 600, 700 degrees for it to to actually ignite. But the vapors coming off of it, and that's like any fire, even solids. It's not the solid that's burning. It's the chemicals, the, the atoms that are um, essentially outgassing. Pyro- it's called pyrolysis that, um, that's actually burning and continuing to feed the fire. So um, certainly that's probably the most combustible um, substance in the kitchen that when you're cooking. So extra care should be taken uh, with any kind of uh, cooking fluid, such as oils of any kind. And then keep in mind, too, uh, applying water is the biggest no-no you can do. And it's not because water contains oxygen. It's because water is going to agitate um, the substance that is burning. And so when we talk fire, it takes three things, right, in, in, a, in, in a simplistic you know, sense. You have fuel, the oil, you have oxygen around it, and you have the heat. And so what water does is it allows more of that oxygen around it to be in contact with the uh, particleized uh, oils that are agitated and stirred up um, into droplets when you apply water. That's why you see those videos online of people applying water to a grease fire. It doesn't. It gets bigger because the heat's there, the fuel's there, but now you're exposing more of that fuel to oxygen, you know, in droplets, in splash form, and that's why those flames surge up. Now, enough water is going to douse it, I mean, but 
But that's why you come with a two-inch diameter, three-inch diameter fire hose. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's your exact, job. That's you've exactly got to, right. You've, you've got to beat the the gut reaction of throwing water on kitchen fires. That's the wrong yeah, thing to do. Don't. Ooh, it is thank the you. wrong thing to do. Yep, it sure is. Thank you, Tom. That was great information. Would help keep our Arizona homeowners safe in their own kitchens this year. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it was an honor, honor to be on with you today, and I wish everybody a, a happy and safe Thanksgiving and upcoming Christmas and holiday season, and I wish all of you at Rosie on the House the best. The Ponderosa, the Wild Wild West, the city of Wickenburg, and celebrating Henry Wickenburg's 200th birthday here winding down the show. We have just been graced, our broadcast table has just been graced by an entire board of dignitaries. <laughs> My goodness, Sonny Borelli, majority whip for the Senate is here. Yeah. Miss Sina Cara, repeat, a guest of the show. Yes. What, what are all the, here. what are the important dignitaries doing here? Well, we're here celebrating with the town of Wickenburg, Henry Wickenburg's 200th birthday. And his uh, pioneering spirit is alive and well and carries on through today. So it's wonderful to be here. It's a gorgeous day. And we have Representative Joanne Osborne as well. So it's, it's been a, a fun morning. We came in on a, on a carriage yes, stagecoach yes. ride, and it was just, uh, just a great way to kick it off. The head of the profession, the, the procession. I, I told Sonny, I said, look, earlier, if you want to come on, come on over and let's visit. It'll be the only radio interview you've had in the last three or four years that doesn't involve politics. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I know y'all are kind of in a busy season right now. We are. We are. We are gearing up for the session to begin. A lot of work in the interim as we uh, prepare um, for the upcoming session. And so, yeah, it's been really, uh, really exciting. A lot of great things going on in Arizona. I mean to tell you, I mean, we are riding the top of the wave right now, aren't we? We are. We are. Economically, things have never been better. Very exciting times and just uh, really honored to be able to serve and represent places like Wickenburg and the rest of my uh, LD13 uh, districts. So, How is the dairy? You know what? We're doing really well. Yeah. So, yeah, hanging in there. Those cows are getting milk. They love this time of year. Production starts going up, and, yes, we're... We're doing great. Crops are growing well, so even through the rain, it's I, fine. <laughs> I tell you what, I don't want to particularly talk politics, but I do want to talk about maybe some of y'all's background. You know, uh, Sonny was in rodeo. He, he's in the he's in the military rodeo hall of fame. Yes. Uh, Cena, your family was in the dairy business. I mean, what would you tell the average citizen about getting involved? Getting involved. Kind of scary running well, a campaign, isn't it? <laughs> no, you know, actually, it's really awesome. I love that Arizona, you know, here we have a, a citizen legislature. And so regular, ordinary people like Senator Borelli, Representative Osborne, myself, you know, we can just decide and say, hey, we want to be able to step up, make an impact, make a difference in our state. And so it's, you know, it's that life in general that prepares us to be able to step in and fill that role and to be able to connect with our people all across the state and throughout our district. So uh, I, I think it's very exciting and just wonderful that we're able to do that. 
did your interest come through the Arizona Farm Bureau and just working on the at the dairy? Or? Yes, yeah. being you know being a farmer and you know with fewer than two percent of us in production agriculture, our voice is very small, but. Our food is very political, so we need to stay on top of the policies that are going to affect us in a positive way, you know, stand in the way of those things that are that are going to hurt us. And so that's what generated that passion for me for policy and, and wanting to get involved and speak out and, and, and step in and, and represent uh, our industry, our district this way. Well, thanks a million. For, go ahead, babe. Well, and, and just in a bigger way, our state. I mean, that's Absolutely. part of the interest of, of yes. being in Arizona. Yes. Very well, much thanks so. a million for letting us grab you all and throw a headset on you. And thanks for you all three making the effort to come out for the celebration. Well, thank you for having us. So glad to see you here. It's always fun to, to get to see you and appreciate all that you do. All right. The best word out. Best of the family. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Very good. Well, babe, you've lined up a, a big old crew of, of guests the whole show today. Great job. Oops. We got it. You got me? Yeah. You traded headsets. I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. There. Well, it was a fun... This is live radio, right? That's what, that's what Gary tells me. It's live radio. Well, thank you. That was a great morning. We enjoyed everybody that stopped by. We absolutely did. We'll be shutting down here shortly, hoping you all have a great uh, weekend and the rest of the week. Uh, if we didn't get to your question, because we did have such a long lineup of guests, just know that our call screener took your name and took your phone number, and I'll be giving you a personal phone call here after the broadcast and answering each one of your questions. Now, for those of you that didn't get in, know that during the week we have a website that's the most powerful free homeowners resource in the universe it's called rosyonthehouse.com we've been doing this show for 30 years answering homeowners questions about maintaining improving and remodeling their home all those questions are posted on our website all the answers to those questions are posted on our website we have recently been voted the number one contractor referral directory in the city of tucson We've been the number one uh, contractor referral directory in Maricopa County for 10 years. So now that now makes us the number one statewide contractor referral network in all of Arizona. One more thank you to Anita's. Cochina. Uh, Anita's Cochina Mexican Cafe. For sharing their internet with us so we could share with you. Come out and have a bite with them.